taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Shem Von Schreck. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. In the world of music, most musicians focus on one instrument, some two, some rarely play three, and others are unique, like Shem von Schreck, who, on his last solo album, Son of Arthur, played bass, guitar, piano, drums, percussion, and also sang lead and background vocals. Although capable of performing as a multi-instrumentalist, his career is focused on being a first-call bassist and vocalist. This has allowed him to make his mark as a frontman, singing and playing bass for the band Ambrosia, as a sideman for Kenny Loggins, and many other artists. He's a singer-singer, blessed with a vocal range and precision that any singer would covet. After all, this tenor has perfect pitch. His career has taken him full circle, from studying formally at the Manhattan School of Music, to classical, to an amazing career in rock and pop. And now there's a new twist with Shem's career, and it involves rekindling his passion for opera. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome the multifaceted Shem Von Schreck. Hey, Shem, thanks for joining us today. Hey, no problem. Glad good, to be here. Good, good. Hey, Shem, I have a question. In order for our audience to better understand uh, where you are in your musical career today, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your musical heritage because it is very rich, and I think it's sort of uh, foundational in, in setting up a framework of where you are today. So uh, let's, uh, you know, I want to ask you about, uh, well, your your dad or, or Artie. He was sure. really known in the, in, in the music biz, and I believe it's in New York as a producer, right? Yeah, he was a producer, yeah. arranger, writer, and, and a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, played drums and piano on a lot of things. And, um, uh, you know, New York was the town that he, he uh, was successful in, and this we're talking about the mid to late 60s. Sure. And uh, he got a... Um, a break to uh, basically ghostwrite um, a an arrangement for Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, hmm. which wound up being uh, "You're Just Too Good to Be True." Can't take my eyes off you. Really? And that's my father's chart. That's his arrangement. So that famous trombone line. Yeah. That's his chart. I mean, really he made cool. that famous. He composed that basically. Not not the song, of course, yeah. but the arrangement. And that's what that's what people know. That's Absolutely. the part of that song that people know. Yeah, that was the hook to the whole uh, t- to the, the whole track. Yeah. So I mean, it, usually it's it's the song and the, the the lyrics that are what people remember. But in that case, it was the arrangement. So he, that was something that did kind of put him on the map in terms of being an arranger and guy working in the record business in New York. And um, he worked with with uh, a lot of people. Paul Anka. Yeah. Um, Laura Nero. In fact, my first recording session was three years old. I played bongos on one of her tracks. Three years playing the bongos. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, uh, Rick. I think that takes a record for that's the earliest record. musician. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you get the idea. That's the that's the environment and the atmosphere that I grew up around. You know, yeah. I was always working on something, and music was always being played in the house. And yeah. my mom's a singer. Uh, they met on the bandstand, basically. And really, my dad was the only guy in the band. My mom trusted to drive her home, and three months later, they were married. So it's uh, <laughs> it, it 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 started on stage. And if you if you want to say I was born on the road, my parents were actually on the road performing mm-hmm. around California. Right? They were in Lake Tahoe, and I was born on the road. She was. Yeah. So it's just it's been music, music, music. And well, you know, it, around that era, you know, the '60s. I mean, there there was some heavy, heavy, uh, incredible music coming out. I mean, you mentioned Frankie Valli, Paul Anka, but there was John Sebastian around that time. That was a little later on. Now, I, it, I don't know if you if you said John Sebastian coincidentally, but. Uh, you're a big boy now. Mm-hmm. Is uh, my father has produced that? Look at that. Look at <laughs> that. He and John Sebastian were very close. And wow. The, you know that that film. My dad was a big part of the uh, composing of the music to that Coppola film. Mm-hmm. That was Coppola's first film. Look at that. Yeah. So it's funny that you even mentioned that. So yeah, yeah he was. Well, he, he was 
the guy behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, how great was the impact? Uh, I mean, obviously, you growing up as a kid and your mom and dad, I mean, that must have been huge impact as to the reason why you even chose the career path. Isn't, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, you could have done whatever you wanted to, but obviously, it's a family business, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm the oldest of three children. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and sister were also musicians growing up, but they didn't pursue music as a career. Um, we weren't told we had to pursue a music career. It wasn't a, a mandatory thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, my dad liked to, you know, get us lessons and things. And But but um, certainly wasn't mandatory. But I'm the only one of the three that went into music as a career. When you think back to what you do remember about, you know, some of those sessions when, when you were a kid watching your father, do you recall how you felt about what you were hearing and what you were experiencing? Mm-hmm. You know, you were just a kid at the time. Yeah, I was probably... Between the age of two and four and a half was that period for me. And, um, <laughs> I remember, I, I just remembered loving to talk to the different musicians on yeah. the breaks. Uh-huh. You know, my dad used to put me, sit me in a chair outside in the studio, and you know they did horns and strings and rhythm section all at the same time in those days. And uh, I just remember sitting in the chair and watching the whole process, watching him conduct it, mm-hmm. count it off, saying, "No, nope, take another one." You know, all that stuff. And I just, that's just what you know when you don't know anything else. Right. As a kid, you think, every, you think everybody does this. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, they do, don't they? <laughs> it was a big eye-opener when I went to you know, first grade and been saying to kids, you go to the recording studios with your dad? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, it was, but to answer your question, it just was, I just, just gobbled all that up. I just yeah. remember loving being there, watching the whole process, and... I don't remember getting fidgety and, and getting bored and like, are we almost done yet, Dad? It was never yeah, that. Right, right, right. It was just, this is what you did, and I enjoyed it. My dad would just say, okay, red light's on, go sit in the chair, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what you did. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Well, jumping ahead a few years, you, know, you, you picked up the bass at the age of, of 12, is that right? Mm-hmm. And this was after learning to play drums and, and piano. Right. Uh, you know, what was it that uh, attracted you to the to the bass ultimately over, you know, the, the drums and piano? Mm-hmm. Well, my dad's dad was a drummer. He's a drummer. I'm a drummer. My brother was a drummer. <laughs> so it was just drum world around and my poor mother having to have three drum sets in the house all going at once. Not decided... enough to have one drum set going. <laughs> um, but my dad said somebody in the family has to play uh, something else. Well, you needed so to complete the rhythm section. So he a Fender Mustang <laughs> bass from a, a session musician in New York, a bass player named Chet Amsterdam. <laughs> and he bought this little bass, and it was for my brother to play. Uh-huh. And he picked it up, played it, but it just didn't click. It didn't, I don't think the interest was there. So it just used to sit <laughs> against the wall, and for fun, I just would pick it up and play it, and it just came real natural. I was playing Teen Town from Weather Report after six months. Holy cow! Wow. It, just, it just happened, and it just it just just fell into my hands that way. But but even still, I considered myself a drummer first. And it wasn't until years, and we're talking years later, um, when I moved to LA in '89, um, I saw that there was a market for a strong singing bass player. I said, "These are the guys that are going to work. Right. These are the guys that are needed. There's a million drummers in this town, and let's let's." Do something that you, where you've got something a little more unique, and that's when I really feel like I became a bass player. Even though I was doing sessions for my dad in New York at age sixteen, seventeen on mm-hmm. bass mm-hmm. in the recording studios, um, I remember doing one session um, as a bass player, and Omar Hakim was a drummer. Really? Wow! And then another time, I played drums when Marcus Miller was the bass player. I was eighteen; I think he was twenty-one, twenty-two. Jeez! So, but yeah, I became a bass player just because it was. It was an economic thing, right? But I did love it. I, I, I really, I really just gravitated to it. Did you begin playing, picking up the bass and just, you know, uh, I mean, you could obviously you could hear the music or whatever. You can hear the bass lines. I mean, the, I mean, tell me a little bit about. Uh, did you have formal training in that as an acoustic bass player, or, or did you just have you always primarily been an electric bassist? Um, I went to the Manhattan School of Music mm-hmm. in New York. Um, and my major was composition. Gotcha. Um, but I wanted to play in the orchestra as well, so I labeled myself um, <laughs> as a bass minor. 
as far as my you know my major was composition as yeah. in a bass minor. Really. And um, I wasn't really taking the the bass as seriously, but I did want to play in the in the Philharmonia Orchestra that we had there. Mm-hmm. And uh, did take some lessons from Orrin O'Brien, who's currently uh, I think she's the principal bassist now at the New York Philharmonic. Oh. Um, so yeah, that was that was a great experience sure. there. But but again, at, in those days, we're talking age eighteen, nineteen, twenty. I didn't consider myself a bass player, but I wanted to play in the orchestra, so I I played acoustic bass and. and and the orchestra there. Right. So your early influences, I mean, you had, um, you know, you liked uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, City of Dan, yeah. Korea, all, you know, the jazz stuff, Herbie, and, but you also had that one unique blend of, of liking the operas of, of Wagner. I mean, just, right. uh, tell us a little about, about the blend and how it all sort of came together. I mean, because, uh, you know, the classical meets, meets rock. I mean, how did you, uh, how did that work out? It really comes back to my father. Yeah. There, there were so many different music styles being brought into the house. But we, he was listening to all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And not just what he was working on, but I mean, he became an orchestrator and an arranger because he taught himself by listening and analyzing Wagner scores, orchestral scores. That's how he learned the art of orchestration and how he became a master of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that going on in the house. And... But he was the type of dad where he, I guess he saw that there was, there was a, a love for music in me, so when he bought his first copy of Sgt. Pepper, he bought two, one for me, one for him. And I'm, <laughs> I'm playing it on my little... <laughs> That's funny. So a record player, so there's, you know, George, and he, he would say, hear those arrangements? That's not them, that's George Martin. <laughs> and he talk about that part of it. So it wasn't just, hey, I like this song, it right. was the whole, I got a lot of, verbal history and the origins of things, and it made me not just a fan of what I was listening to, but the, the whole creative process was what fascinated me at a very young age. So he was, And then I remember the next big mind-blowing thing that I heard was I, I heard him listening to something in his music room, and I came in, I said, what's that? And he was listening to Yes and uh, from the Yes album, Yours is No Disgrace. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, that, that blew my mind. I was six. <laughs> and I thought that was the greatest thing I had ever heard in my life. Oh. So I became a huge fan of Yes, and then that opened the door to Tarkas, Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. Yeah. But, but then there was the other side. There was the more, let's call it more organic, earthy side of the Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Stephen yeah, Dan that, music yeah, in the house. You and I are built in the same, from the same mold because <laughs> that's all the stuff that I grew up with and just loved. Yeah. Yeah, but the, but the great thing about it is that I, I had a, a father that could break it all down. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and he he go over to his Hammond organ and he play the same chords because he has the, he's got the same ears that I have. He can just you know listen to the chord and play it. And so I got to see what those notes were that Rick Wakeman was playing. Yeah, right. right. On the ham on the B three. Wow. You know, he could play those solos back on on roundabout and close to the edge. Yeah, you understood it. He understood it well. Yeah, yeah. So that was huge. Hmm. That was huge. You know, you mentioned a moment ago that you know. Um, you know, shortly after you took up the bass, you know, you still considered yourself a drummer, and you even played drums on some some of the commercial jingles that your dad wrote and arranged. And I think you were only about thirteen years old at the, at the time. Right. It, you know, what an amazing opportunity you had to learn and perform professionally at such a young age. Yeah, it wasn't always to, to the pleasure of the other musicians. I have to say, <laughs> I remember doing my first session and. I, I you know, I'm 13. I don't know what the word nepotism means. I never heard of that. <laughs> and one of the other musicians, I'll remain nameless, actually somebody that that works a lot, you know, and you've probably heard of. He he said, you know, what's going on here? When he saw this kid, and he said, oh, I guess nepotism does function in the society. <laughs> and he walked away, kind of like. And I'm like, what does that mean? Oh, <laughs> I didn't understand what that meant. Oh, so I'd ask my dad what that meant. And he goes, ah, I don't. Don't worry about him. <laughs> but it, but yeah, it was it was great to do that and a, and a great experience. So the recording process was entered entered into my life early. Plus, my dad had a recording studio in the house. That's nice. That's cool. So we're, he's always working on something, recording something. And you know, I, even if I didn't want to, because I was wanted to go outside and play football with my friends, but he'd say, "I need an assistant engineer. Get in here. <laughs> <laughs> I need someone to push that fader because I don't have three hands." <laughs> 
Well, you've done extensive work with so many artists, you know, and moving ahead a little bit, you know, Steve Perry, Christopher Cross, Ambrosia stuff, and even. But I'd like to talk to you just a little bit about Kenny Loggins, and you know, tell us how you met up with him, and and a little bit of the history of of playing with him. You, that's been a really an incredible uh, gig and relationship for both of you. Yeah, that was a great uh, great opportunity. Um, when did it start? My f- very good friend John DeFaria, who. Um, He's a guitar player. He wrote Get On Your Feet for Gloria Estefan, Miami Sound Machine. Mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. a uh, driving force in Miami Sound Machine at, the, at, their, at their inception. Uh, he, myself, and a drummer friend, Kim Edmondson, did a police tribute band in L.A., and we played around town for a couple of years just having fun. And uh, he was subbing for Kenny, for the guitar player that was working, and there was an opportunity where Freddie Washington, who was playing bass for Kenny at the time, was going to be taking a break and moving on to play with, I think he was doing a record for Aaron Neville. And he was going to be out of town and unavailable to do the, a lot of the 94 Kenny tour. Mm-hmm. So John recommended me, and I don't think at the time Kenny really was in the mood to go through the whole cattle call audition process. So I just got sent a bunch of tapes and was invited up to Kenny's house to kind of interview slash audition for him, which was basically him sitting with an acoustic guitar and me with a bass through a small amp and just singing back and forth. And at the end of that uh, meeting, (laughs) six days later, I was doing a live TV show with with Matt Lauer hosting. Um, (laughs) Before Matt Lauer was Matt Lauer. Um, (laughs) Next thing I know, I'm I'm, I'm playing uh, with Kenny. That's great. And and a lot through that, that same year, Freddie Washington was taking time off, so anytime he was was busy, I got the call. And that was, that was great. So then there was um, three years of that, that same kind of working relationship where I was subbing for Freddie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Kenny went and did the Unimaginable Life album, and uh, there was a, he had an all-new band. He decided to work with it with an all new band, and um, actually, to, to, to talk about the the ninety four through ninety six period that I was subbing for Freddie, one of the thrills for me was I got to work and play with Steve George for Mister Mister and Paige. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's funny because as thrilled as I was to play with Kenny, I think secretly I was a little more more excited to play with Steve, and and, uh, and that that was a blast. He yeah, was that's a great cool. guy and a great musician. Uh, you, you know, you've done your, I, I think this is correct, but you've done your share of TV appearances, haven't you? I mean, you, we see you, uh, I think, on The Tonight Show off and on and, and uh, doing background vocals for people like Peter Cetera, Amy Grant, Tanya Tucker, and the list goes on. Do you do any other uh, television work? Yeah. Well, th- for a time there, I was uh, just called Vicki Randall, who's still in The Tonight Show band. Uh, she played with Kenny for a time. Okay. I think she's on the, um, the Live the Grand Canyon DVD. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, she uh, was a friend, and whenever the Tonight Show actual band would back up the music artist guest for that show, she'd call uh, myself or Talek Olstead to uh, help her sing background vocals if they needed three-part harmonies and stuff. So that was just a call from Vicky as you know, a friend saying, hey, hmm. let me put a little vocal group together, because you know, she dominates the vocals on that show, and... Mm-hmm. and uh, but that was, I think that was, uh, that whole period was, was the mid, mid-90s when I would get those calls. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a guy that uh, I've actually followed his career for, for, you know, since the beginning of his, his career, really. His name's Rhett Lawrence, and uh, yeah. he's the producer that you've worked with. I mean, he's the guy that's behind the Kelly Clarkson's, like, Miss Independent, and I think even some stuff for uh, Mariah Carey, Vision of Love, and yes. he's worked with Selena and Macy Gray. Um, I've I noticed that you uh, you you've worked with him a little bit, right? Yeah, I did. What kind um, of stuff did you do with Rhett? Um, a very good dear friend of mine, a great singer, a great artist. Her name is Susie Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, she started as an R and B singer and could equally rival Mariah Carey or, or Whitney Houston. And really? she's just an amazing amazing singer. But uh, she fell in love with the band live, yeah. uh-huh. and she completely changed her whole direction. And she started working on an alternative record, on the, kind of on the heels of uh, Alanis Morissette. Okay. Her thing. Um, and she started working with Rhett as a producer on that project. Mm-hmm. So 
it was myself and Kurt Biscara on drums that were just at the ground floor of, of that whole production process. And, and um, I follow you. We did, and it was just at Red's house. We just worked at it in his place, and yeah. it basically just demos. He's a huge talent. I mean, he's one heck of a keyboardist. You know, he did a. I think at the very beginning of his career, he was doing a lot of uh, keyboard programming on Fairlight stuff, and uh, um, but uh, he's he's obviously developed an interesting portfolio of clients. Yeah, he works very slowly. Yeah, he takes his time. I mean, we, we would spend a week on one song. Really, and we're talking about the rhythm section part. Just going, you know, trying new things, trying Jeez. new sounds. I mean, he, you know, here. Here I am, bass player, trying to make sure that I have all the top gear, make sure that my sound is clean, all this stuff. And all he did was threw all that away and rented the crappiest basses with the oldest strings <laughs> and said, but I, wanna, I don't want that clean tone. I want the ugliest, dirtiest sound. So we, we tried eight-string basses. We tried Hoffner basses with gut strings. I mean, we tried every sound possible. Oh, beat-up Rickenbackers, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, 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 it was, was kind of going a little mad, in my opinion, but at the end of the day, or I should say at the end of the week, that song sounded great. Yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that's really... Hey, tell us a little bit about uh, an event that you did with Don Felder um, uh, from the Eagles. You know, I guess it's a fairly interesting gig, and, and as you ended up playing with some really interesting people. Yeah, yeah that, the, those type of things are great because you, you never know who's going to be invited to to share the stage with you. And, and Don, uh, who's just somebody, somebody I started working with in the last year, um, he was doing a benefit for uh, Katrina Relief. Okay. And he, he, it was, I think it was billed as Don Felder and Friends. Hmm. And the guy's got a lot of friends, from David Foster to um, Hughley, Hughley, D.L. Hughley. Am I saying his name right? I don't know. But he was, he was a, on that show. Alice Cooper was on that show. Stephen Stills. Um, I think Dennis Quaid came out and played with played really? on stage with us with his he band. Pl- he plays. Yeah, he's 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 got his own band. He plays around. He 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 loves it. Holy cow! Yeah, and uh, Tommy Shaw was there. Jack Blades. So um, yeah, those those things are great. I've had opportunities to work in in several of those. You know, invite all your friends, and I'm just lucky enough to play for the artist who's invited to these things. Yeah. <laughs> well, talk talking about playing with a, a bun, bunch of people, you know, um, you know, there's um, there's actually a place in, in L.A. There, it's called Ponchos, and uh, I wanted yeah. to address this a little bit because, man, they have a MySpace, a brand new, uh, I guess, a MySpace site, and where you can see all the different players who play over there in the evenings at Ponchos, and uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about that. You've joined the band a couple of times. Well, I actually. There's the phrase "ground floor" again. I was yeah. at the at the beginning of that. Wow. The the band centers around and has centered around for years now a guitarist, a singing guitar player who's, who's a monster talent named Jim Garrison. He also has gone by the name of Jimmy Spurgeon or Little Jimmy. Or he's he's an amazing talent. He's a, he's a walking jukebox. Knows every song. Sings great. Plays great. And the band is basically revolved around him. And we started a, a trio down in um, Newport Beach, and this is back in 97, I'm going to yeah. say. And the sax player named Jim Wheeler, who's a great friend, and he actually yeah. played on Son of Arthur. Um, yeah, he is on the album, yeah. Yeah, he moved the band up to a club in Manhattan Beach called Ponchos, as you said. Yeah. And I went on the road with Tom Jones for a year, yeah. and they brought the band up there, and when I came back off the road... I wound up doing for like the next couple of years every Friday and Saturday night that they did, and it's just such a it, the, the the choice of music and the selection of music that the band plays every night is just so diverse. And that's the great thing about it. You can do everything from Al Green to to um, Ozzy Osbourne in the course of a night. <laughs> and um, I was you know I was always contributing with the police songs and the songs from Sting. So between the, the two of us singing lead vocals and we had revolving drummers come through, um, it was it's just been a great band. And now over the years, it's been a revolving door in all the chairs. Now there's a bunch of different singing bass players that come through the door and, and uh, different guitar player singers come through the door. So it's just it's Jim Wheeler basically the guy putting it all together. And so what is it? Is it like, uh, I mean, does he book guys to come and play? I've heard some things that, you know, some guys are there in, in the in the seats or whatever, and all of a sudden, hey, come on up and play with us or whatever. So it's pretty loose, isn't it? It can be loose if he knows that someone's coming or yeah. if he sees somebody, if somebody just happens to pop in that, that, that um, 
as a friend and say, come on up and, and jam, sing a couple songs or, you know, sit yeah. in on drums or whatever. In fact, if, I, if I've ever gone there and I'm not playing there and I'm just going in there to say hi, I, I kind of have a little the game that I play where I don't come in and sing, play bass. I always say, I'll only sit in if they let me play drums. <laughs> then I'll get to play drums. There's your outlet right there. You know? Yeah, I don't play drums anymore in <laughs> public, funny. so I, I, uh, this is an opportunity to do that. It's cool. fun. But it's a, it's a great place. It's, it's Poncho's Manhattan Beach. I'm, I'm plugging it right now. For, yeah, there you go. For my buddy Jim. Manhattan Beach, uh, incredible Mexican restaurant, best margaritas in the world. <laughs> and, um, great music on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. Thursday's more of acoustic night. Fridays and Saturdays is, a, um, is, is the band. They let it go. I think, yeah. uh, Eddie, we should make a little corporate inside music cast trip out there to check that out sometime. No doubt. Just some spontaneous interviews. I get Jim to let me play that night. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do that. Well, hey, Shem, I want to I want to talk about your voice, and you know, you just have a truly amazing voice. And I, I, can you fill us in on, on your vocal training? I mean, like teachers, yeah. mentors, and so on, and and how does this cross paths with your your classical training? Well, up until two thousand two, there was no vocal training. Really? Um, like I said, both my parents are singers. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister is an amazing singer. Why she why she's never did anything with her voice? I, I don't know. She's just. I stand in awe for singing. Um, but we all sang, and that's just what you did. You, you sang, yeah. and we, we performed together as a family. So there was no formal training. I didn't, I just never never sought out the, the I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but I just never sought out the, the need mm-hmm. for vocal training. But moving forward to 2002, when I was going to, when the, the love and desire to pursue a career in opera came about, I said, well, that's something you can't just do. You've got to get some sort of vocal training, and, and, you know, the most important thing is you you have to learn your craft. And just by chance and and, an act of grace, I stumbled upon a wonderful music program uh, in Torrance, California, with a a marvelous teacher named Hedley Nosworthy. That's a that's a great name. I can can say that name all day. Hedley Nosworthy. Wow. (laughs) And he is... uh, Fantastic teacher, a great tenor himself. He uh, sang in Europe and Salzburg, and, and he's just he's just one of those guys that, that should be uh, much more well known as a teacher than uh, than he is. But he's he's fantastic. His he has a book out, an educational book called Simply Singing, hmm. and it's it's wonderful, wonderful book. And, and uh, anyone that that in, in any style of music that is looking for to a singing career or just wants to sing in the bath right. in the shower. <laughs> right. This is a great book. It. It's a great tool, and it, it just gives you little tips and things. It's, it's very very thorough, but very uh, easy to comprehend and understand. Mm-hmm. So had... that's, that's where my voice training, uh, actual formal training, started, and pretty late in life. But uh, for the type of repertoire that I'm singing in opera, um, this, the age that I am is the perfect age where the voice is um, it, it's mature enough now to be able to handle the type of roles yeah. that I'm singing now. You don't you would not go near a Wagner score if, as a vocalist, as a singer, if you're 25. You just mm-hmm. wouldn't go near it. Right. The female voice matures much sooner than the male voice does. And I think emotionally too. <laughs> <laughs> I was I wasn't going to say anything. I was yeah, really. That's a different <laughs> issue. Yeah, that maturity thing of the guys and the girls. It's it's I can, it's un, un, I can't understand it. <laughs> hey, listen to that to that note though. Of, of um, you've had several times to actually perform professionally as a tenor. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's it's a fairly new career. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's something that like. <laughs> You know, have, having experience in, and a career in pop music and knowing a lot of people and making right. a lot of connections, it's pretty a nice web that's been weaved there. But this is a brand new venture, and those those two genres of music are completely detached right. in terms of connections. So it's like here I am starting all over again, making new connections, singing for conductors, auditioning for, for people sure. here who don't know anything about me. Right. I haven't done nearly as much as, as, much as I would have liked Right. But I'm just chalking that up to I'm pretty new on the scene. Mm-hmm. I've heard some of the classical, I guess, a couple of clips on, I believe, on YouTube uh, when you're singing the Italo- Italian uh, aria Vestila Giubbia and then of the German, uh, is it Wintersturm? Wintersturm, yes. 
year, Matt. Yeah. yeah and, uh, and it sounded wonderful. I mean, even some of the comments there are just wonderful. So, uh, thank you. You know, that, uh, I wish you well with this. I think it's a, it's a whole new genre of music, but it's a different challenge, isn't it? It, it is, but the whole, the whole reason that I decided to take it on was from a little boy. The first music I ever heard that I can remember hearing was Wagner and my dad playing it in the house. Wow. And since the time I was a little boy, I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sing just like that singer that I'm listening to on this record. Yeah. And he took us to see operas, and I saw Wagner's Ring cycle in its entirety when I was 11 in Seattle. My dad flew us all the way across the country to, to go see that, and I wanted to do that. But life just kind of went in a different direction. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know... The police came along, and I wanted to be. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it, it just didn't happen. But but this inbred desire to do that, this this long term seed had been planted. Right. And my desire uh, won out over any fear or doubt of giving it a try. Hey Sam, did you have a chance to catch the police's uh, reunion tour? Did you did you see their show? No, and all my friends are teasing me about it because they did and I didn't. Chris Rodriguez, <laughs> who I know you guys know, yeah. sure. he actually was backstage because Keith Urban played at the same event that the police played, and I'm you know I he he's leaving me messages as they're playing and just watching them play and just rubbing it in and and I'm and I'm just going oh no and my other dear friend Stevie DeStanislaw, drummer he uh, he got to see them and I didn't so no I'm I'm the I think I'm the one guy that didn't, but I'm, I, I just keep saying, well, I'll, I'll wait for the DVD and hear a good mix. I know, I know. I caught that show over in uh, St. Louis uh, when they played there, and it was it was great. I mean, I, I think the thrill for me was, was seeing Stuart Copeland play. That's it. That was what I wanted to see. Yeah. He had, he had just an amazing, amazing setup. When you see the DVD, you'll understand what I'm talking about, but it was just... It was cool. He, there was a couple of songs where he just he left the set and he went back and all he did was play this all this auxiliary percussion and it was just it was just too cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. hey, being that your dad has had such a huge influence on your music, you know, you in a way dedicated your first solo album, Son of Arthur, to him, a, a tribute, correct? In a way, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's just something that you, it's, it's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. I hear so much when I listen to it now because. A few years old now. I just listened to it, and I wasn't even conscious of it at the time that that, that was an influence of these particular passages. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's influence, and I listen to it now because uh, I set up this MySpace page, and I'm listening to things. And I'm going, ah, oh, that's so Artie Shrek. God, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just there. So, um, you know, in the in the Old Testament, you you see nobody had last names. It was so and so, son of so and so, son of so and so, and it goes on and on and down. So mm-hmm. I I wasn't as an artist going by a, with a last name. So my last name was Shem, son of Arthur. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the so it, it, it's a double meaning because it is yeah. heavily influenced by his you know wonderful influence on my life and mm-hmm. and then the biblical reference. Sure. Well, you know, it was uh, the album was released uh, a few years back, but you know, th- this album we, we've been sort of digesting it over these past few days, and uh, it's a wonderful compilation of great songs. And there's so much music and wonderful variety, and in, in, uh, how should I say, styles almost in, in, or influences in one album. But I've I've got one question for you, and, and maybe this is this is just a, a personal observation, but. Did you ever ever consider doing two albums? There's so much strength in in, in this music. Did that did that ever cross your mind? To do uh, like a, a double album? album. I, yeah, a double album. I mean, there, this is so robust of a of a project. I mean, uh, I've, I've read a lot of comments on uh, regarding the you know reviews on the album, and, and people just love it, and they say there is so much that you offer here. That uh, I, I was just wondering if that even ever crossed your mind. You know. Yeah. Oh, it, it absolutely did. And while I was recording the record, I had uh, I had walking pneumonia for about five months during the making of that record. Holy cow! And I can actually hear it in some of the vocals. <laughs> really? Yeah, I, I can hear it. But um, I was I probably wrote seven songs that no one's ever heard while I was recording the record, and thinking, okay, well, this will be for the next. These songs will be for the next record, and it was. Very shortly after the release of the record, which was, I think, June of 2001, it was March 
of 2002 when I decided that I was going to go back to school and pursue an opera career. And it was just kind of, you know, there just wasn't enough butter to go all over the bread. I just didn't have enough time. There's the, you know, the pie chart is only 100%. I couldn't devote any more time to anything else because I was touring with Kenny and I was going to school at the same time. So I was literally getting off the airplane, landing in L.A. and going straight to class. Wow. Going straight to school. So those seven, eight songs that I wrote in the course of, of recording Son of Arthur, they're just sitting there. So to answer, that was a long-winded answer to your question. Mm-hmm. I did think of doing a second record and follow-up record because uh, the songs are pouring out of me Yeah, at that time. Sure. And who knows? I, when uh, When there's a little more flexibility, I don't see a reason not to uh, put those songs down. Yeah. You know, I noticed you played so many uh, instruments on this album. I think you played bass, you played uh, guitar parts, drums, you know, piano, percussion, and and obviously most of the background vocals. But with that said, you probably had a pretty firm direction of where you wanted to go with this album from a it musical standpoint. It was a standpoint. work in progress. That's, what, that's one of my favorite things about the record. Um, while I was on the road with Tom Jones in 98, Mm-hmm. A uh, guitar player would leave his acoustic guitar in the closet on the tour bus. And I was one of those guys that was always the last guy to go to sleep on the tour bus. <laughs> and I just pulled the guitar out and started playing. Uh-huh. Not really taking myself seriously as a guitarist at all. And I, when I say at all, I mean that. <laughs> you know, from my ears only. Uh-huh. And uh, I started writing tunes. Hmm. I really didn't think there was anything going to happen with it, but these songs just started happening. And I'd never written songs on the guitar before. So I had, by the end of the tour, and here's 99, and I kind of put a little studio together in my house, I started making demos of these songs with no intention of doing anything. Really? And these songs, the, the, the tracks evolved. My guitar playing was getting better without me noticing. And next thing I know is I've got a volume of songs and a recording studio, and they just the, the process get, got better. I became a, started to become a little better recording engineer over the time. So it was a complete work in progress. It wasn't an, wasn't the intent to sit down and let's make a record. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that at all. It just these demos turned into tracks, turned into this, turned into you know arrangement ideas. Next thing I know, I have a record. Yeah. You know, and then during the course of the process, I did decide, yeah, we need to do something with this. Right. Um, but it didn't start off as a with with the intention of making a, a record at, at, at the beginning. Hmm, that's very that's very interesting. Yeah. There's a there's a couple there's a few tracks that I, I want to sort of talk about. And uh, one, although like a, in respect to that, it's it's been a few years, but uh, I'm sure you recall them rather rather uh, dearly. There's there's a song um, a track called Trapped Inside Myself, which I consider to be one of the most complex pieces on your album. Uh, vocally, you. Um, you know, you f- I, I, at least I found you, I heard you sort of a a little bit of, of you pushing your range and your technique. Is is this true? I mean, this song is the the vocals are imp- impeccable, by the way. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Um, did this push you? Did, did your writing your own music and uh, you know and collaborating and and creating your album? Did you push your own vocal abilities, or not really? I, 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 I I'm having a hard time answering the question because. That song again was <laughs> talking about borrowing someone's guitar in a hotel room. Yeah, um, I was in Brazil when I wrote that song. That's why the song has kind of a, a bossa nova yeah, yeah. idea to it. And the melody that that happened needed to be sung, mm-hmm. so I just sang it. Yeah, it just it again in a, on a smaller scale, a work in progress. When I laid, did the first demo, which is basically the basic track of what wound up on the record, I did a. I just started scatting right. on yeah. the demo uh-huh. because here's this this four chord uh, progression that mm-hmm. goes on through the fade of the song, and I just started scatting over the top of it. And that scat that you hear is is the scat that I just messed around. I was messing around. <laughs> well, I was sort that's of joking. With... That, that, that's at the end of the record. Oh yeah. Uh, when I when I say side myself, right. from is is the scat that was I was just messing around with, and that's right. the demo. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> me and Rick were sort of we're listening at that scat at the very end, and I'm like, man, I mean, you were just you were having fun. It was improvisational, and and you know, I said, and I sort of you know snuck it like, gee whiz, what a show off! This guy can sing so well. <laughs> you know, he has to scat like this all the way to the end. I'm like, wish I could scat like that. But that was a very it was a very interesting um, a cut. I mean, it had a lot of freedom within that that track. You know. Um, but uh, that that was really cool. Speaking of uh, this song, Trapped Inside Myself, let's go ahead and uh, let our listeners in on, on what this thing sounds like, Eddie. Uh, Shim's been kind enough to uh, allow us to play this here on Inside Music Cast. So without further ado, this is Shim von Schreck's song, Trapped Inside Myself, from his album, Son of Arthur. It's a love like never before One that Inside my 
That was the song Trapped Inside Myself, a track from Shim Von Schreck's solo record, Son of Arthur. Hey, Shem, thanks for allowing our listeners to uh, have a little taste of one of your tracks there. I'm sure they appreciate that. My pleasure. Uh, another track that I'd like to just mention is uh, uh, Someone I've Never Been, which is uh, more of a uh, – it almost reminded me a little bit of some a, a, a couple of Paul Williams tracks, you know, like Evergreen or so forth. But you chose – my question is directed more towards the bass selection. You chose a fretless bass. Yes. On that one there. What, what's uh, – getting a little technical there. What was about the the fretless that you chose uh, as a musician as opposed to conventional? Well, let me uh, let me get, get – fine-tune your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's fretless playing the low tones. Okay. But there's also fretless playing some of the, the answer lines and um, solo lines around the vocal uh, mm-hmm. second verse. Right. You, uh, which you're referring to? The oh. low, the low. Low. Yeah. Uh, there's actually two bases. There's the fretless on there, okay. which at the time my neck was kind of warped and it was giving this wow kind of a twang <laughs> thing to it, and I just loved what it was doing on that D low D yeah. third fret on the B string, and it was just making this great uh, buzz. <laughs> so I just I, I love the 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 character that it was giving me, and it's and also um, I've got my upright and I'm bowling it as well. Oh. on uh, some of those crescendos at the end of the A section. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the fretless, so, <laughs> again, kind of the Rhett Lawrence mentality, the bass is having a problem. Good, let's record it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it went down that way, huh? And it went down that way, yeah. Oh. You, can, you can hear it kind of doing that on, on the track. Yeah, I'll take another listen to it. I want to take that, uh, listen to that a little closer, you know. And there was one other, one other uh, track I wanted to ask you about, and it's Reality Fantasy. And you know Jim Wheeler added a really nice touch from the very beginning. You know, great vocals. They're you know they're really nice textural choice as opposed to uh, a synth playing that a background patch. It works really nicely. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was. It's I, that's some of my favorite things to do recording is is doing all the background vocal parts. And yeah. Stacking them, layering them, and arranging them. And the great thing about that whole record is the fact that it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a digital record. It wasn't uh, Pro Tools or any computers involved. Yeah. It's all got to get it right. No, it's mm-hmm. very organic. It's nice. Hey, I just wanted to ask you, uh, what kinds of things you're working on today or currently? It's been mostly opera. Oh, yeah? Um, I've, I left Kenny's band in March of this year, uh-huh. and it was basically not because I didn't want to play in the band anymore. It was I don't have enough time to devote to Kenny, mm-hmm. and if I really am serious about this career in opera... I've got a lot of repertoire to learn. I've got a lot of work to do. And it's a lot of time spent learning repertoire in a language you don't speak fluently. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And, of course, you know, then, then there's the, the technical part of the singing. So to answer your question, I'm, I'm working on my opera career. Mm-hmm. And that's that's, this is what I, I want to do full time. I'll, I'll never, I'll never uh, throw a pop career away completely, but uh, my focus is opera and... and you know, I, I want to let people know that. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. That's excellent. It? Yeah, it's you know, it's it's just so. Uh, how should I say? Um, unusually exciting. I mean, this is this is a rarity. I mean, would you consider this a rarity? And and somebody going from pop and having this kind of an interest, I, I don't hear this too often. And and uh, I'm I'm like uh, I've got a little smirk on my face because I'm like I'm really admiring that that you're you're taking your passion to, you know, to to the career level. And I w- I wish you really well with this. You know, thank you. I really do. Yeah. A very uh, close friend of mine is a drummer. Played in, played with Kenny for years. Uh, he, you know, he he said, you know, most people they reach a point in their careers where they're they're comfortable, they're they're well known, they're respected. Mm-hmm. They don't leave that. They don't walk away from that. They, you know, it's not in human nature to walk away from something that you thrive in. Mm-hmm. And. He's, he was basically trying to tell me in a nice way, "You're crazy." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't believe you're, you're, you're turning your back on this and walking into an arena that you haven't had any experience in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, it, but it's it's what you said. The, the the reason is because you can't ignore the heart. Yeah. The heart is is saying this is what you what makes you just. Buzz with with life. Yeah, and, you know, when I sing this r- repertoire that I'm that I'm doing, I'm working on uh, Parsifal. 
right now, which is oh. the last of Wagner's operas mm-hmm. and uh, the title role. And oh, I'm just I can't I can't describe to you guys how moved I get when I sing this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's just it's like nothing I've ever experienced. And it there is a part of it that does reach deep down into that three year old four year old boy that heard this stuff as a kid, it tugs on my heart much more powerfully than any other kind of music. I'm sure. Because it's so, it, it has such deep roots. Yeah. It, it's sort of come full circle with you, hasn't it, Shem? I've used that expression before in yeah. describing this, yes. It, it, a lot of it is, well, it all is, it has come full circle. I would agree. Wow, that's neat. Well, Shem, thanks so much for spending uh, time with us and, and allowing us to get to know you more really, and, and yes. uh, our audience. I'm sure they're really going to appreciate this. Oh, this was fun. I, uh, <laughs> I was trying to uh, hope I wasn't talking too fast because no, uh, no, I was no, trying no. to get as much out as I, as I could because <laughs> I know you guys, your time is limited. So. No, that's okay. In fact, we encourage, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be keeping uh, tabs on you because, you know what, Inside Music Cast is not about just rock and whatever. I mean, we, we cover all genres and we want to broaden our base also. So, you know, the things that you're going to be doing, we, we, uh, we hope we can anticipate to, to touch base with you and find out how things are going and, and, uh, and you keep us posted also, you know? Oh, anytime, guys. So, anytime, you know, we'll keep in touch. And I, and I think what you guys are doing is great. Oh, we appreciate that. Thanks a you lot. Are, you guys are uniting a, a, a group of very passionate people in the world. Thanks again, all right? Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so right, much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Shem Von Schreck for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week, so be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 